Hey everyone, this is Rob Liefeld. Welcome to another Rob Observations. We have got a full plate today, so full. I'm not sure we're going to be holding it together. Uh, this is going to be one packed uh, plate. If, if I could, I will, I will, I will uh, compare this to my favorite uh, uh, eatery of, of late. It opened during the, the pandemic that we've all experienced up the street. It's called Burrito Brothers. Burrito Brothers is yet another play on the Chipotle style uh, of, of of getting food, which has been you know uh, whether whether it's Chronic Taco or or some of these others that have have not have uh, have have come up and, and and you stand there and you make your burrito, you make your quesadilla, you make your you know whatever. I'm I'm really a giant Mexican food fan, and Burrito Brothers has been a godsend. But but there are sometimes the burritos that they assemble. I, I, I watch them. I watch them just this weekend. They can barely hold the contents that they promise. Some of these, uh, and, and I've watched my, my, my own kids, and, I, and I, I've wondered aloud if they took some of these specialty items off the menu, would they in fact still have the long lines that I have to wait in? Because I'm very basic, man. I want my nachos. I want my chicken. I want my cheese. I want my pico and some jalapenos and some black beans. And that's it. It's, 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 it's all in front of me in the dishes. But what slows the process down and what makes the burrito almost impossible to contain is the french fries in the burrito the egg in the burrito the shrimp in the burrito the lobster in the burrito okay all three in the burrito all four in the burrito um all this all of the different toppings that go in to this that have to be grilled to the side but the french fries whenever you see somebody who's getting the french fries in the burrito in front of you you know that they are screwing you over but you know that that is their like life and and death like like desire to have those french fries in whether it's the california burrito which is a hamburger in a burrito but it is literally bigger than my forearm or my bicep i mean these are gigantic okay and i don't have big biceps and big forearms but they are still i mean this is man-sized food so so today's uh and, and look it's my, my my kids are the ones who are slowing the, the line down with the french fries and the and the shrimp. And that's why if they call me while I'm in line, I'm not taking their order. I don't need to be slowed down. I just want my basics, everything in the tray in front of me. Today, I'm not, I'm not going to be able, to, I don't know that I'm going to be able to contain this because I'm going to go try and try and cover a lot of different subjects and some stuff I'm going to have to go fry up on the pan over to the left of me. And it's not all of the ingredients in front of me, which is as I prefer it when I order. I want the chicken. I want the black beans. I want the cheese. Put it under the heat lamp. Melt that sucker down. Give me some pico. Give me some jalapenos. I'm good to go. I don't want your sour cream. I don't want your guac. I don't want the corn. I don't want, you know, I just, I, I'm very basic. But like I said, so many people, they get the, the trust me, the Three Amigos burger uh, burrito is one of the favorites there, and that's a multi. There's the reason it's called Three Amigos. I think truly that the, 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 the ingredients are the Amigos that they are referring to, and this is one giant burrito. And you can, when they fold it in front of me, I'm just like, how does that even you know contain itself? So today, I'm not sure our show is going to be able to contain itself. The ingredients are all over the place. I love Burrito Brothers. Eat at Burrito Brothers if you have one. They are delicious. So... Today is sticking the landing, sticking the landing and how it uh, connects and pertains to so much of what's going on right now, stuff that I'm absorbing and consuming. And it makes me think back to really the times where the stories that I have loved, the comics I have followed have stuck the landing and a few that haven't, a few that haven't. And then there's one that I am a huge fan of that I think the jury is still out on whether the landing indeed got stuck almost 40 years 40 years later. I mean, literally. So so we're going to uh, take a walk down memory lane on this one, uh, what, I, what I think is the greatest Avengers villain of all time. Tickle you right there. You've never heard of him. You, you might never hear of him, but f from 1977 to 1979, he uh, just held everybody in the deepest throes, okay? Um, just, just really electrified the Avengers comic. But the ending was somewhat compromised because it was not delivered by the team that started it. So it wasn't even the contents. It was the execution, even though the, the subject matter hadn't changed. But we're going to get to that. Uh, big finales that stuck the landing. I can think of none bigger than the Dark Knight finale, Dark Knight 4, which was months late and had been altered slightly. We have a great podcast. Myself and Jimmy J, we did the deepest, most... um really informative dive 
that, that we have done on, on, on graphic novels and in comic books at that time when we analyzed the push between Watchmen and Dark Knight. Both were released in the same window and both uh, were seeming to pay attention to each other as Alan Moore and Frank Miller were the two biggest fish in the pond at the time. And they seem to have been pushing each other so much so that in that uh, podcast we detail how uh, some of their friends have gone on record as have ha- having been witness to the fact that when one or the other of them knew the contents of one or the other, that they shifted to meet either balance and or jump ahead and or counter what was being done because they were semi-similar. You know, they were both kind of kind of dealt with rogue superhero factions and a future. And I think that window alone gave them both enough room to operate one off the other. In Dark Knight's case, the promise of this showdown between Superman, who had been seen as a government puppet and a uh, a tool of a Ronald Reagan who got extra terms, you know, and it, which again, in Watchmen, Nixon got extra terms. I mean, again, these are very, they really go back and forth in some, some, some crazy similarities that they both had. The, uh, you know, the, 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 the entire concept of alternate histories and alternate futures is so fun to me. I, I am currently uh, just lapping up every frame of For All Mankind, a killer show that I cannot recommend more highly on Apple Television by Ronald D. Moore, who brought us those amazing, epic, uh, mind-twisting, really so well-done episodes of the reboot of Battlestar Galactica in the early 2000s on sci-fi. The show is phenomenal. It has been lost to the sands of time. It it feels to me it's been lost to the sands of time. Um, It was literally the best show on television whenever it was on, whatever season when it aired. It really gave us a great conclusion, and, and and I can actually pivot and say that was a finale that stuck the landing. It was really, uh, really satisfying, and when you were done, you felt like, wow, I've I've really uh, experienced a full meal. That that giant oversized three amigos burrito, you know, and that and that 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 tortilla that was taxed to hold it all together, it it held, and it was satisfying, and it was delicious. As as Ron. Uh, as Ron Burgundy would say, this burrito was filling. This was filling. And then throw it out the window and, of course, of course you know, kill Jack Black's <laughs> dog. So a uh, little Ron Burgundy shout out. Never hurt anyone, right? Okay. So Dark Knight had an alternate reality, just like For All Mankind has an alternate reality, which the space race we lost and were trailing the Russians for much of the early period, which actually set the pace for a race that really escalates out of control in a way that it did not in our real timeline that we've lived in. But For All Mankind dances with this. Presidents are presidents during different terms. Certain people like a John Lennon don't get shot and killed. There are different events that transpire in this alternate timeline, the little extra details that make it so satisfying. And, and, and Dark Knight and Watchmen both dealt with alternate timelines like the one that I'm enjoying with on For All, for all, for all Mankind, which I, again, I cannot recommend more highly. It's on season two right now. No Apple is not a sponsor, but I am pushing that show because it's great and you should check it out. The production values are great. The performances are great. Alternate Realities is where I live. Dark Knight, Stuck the Landing, the showdown between Superman, who we had always you know known and they've already shown earlier in the series that he can grab nuclear missiles and toss them into the ocean. I mean, Superman is a much more formidable power than Batman seemingly is. But Batman met him straight on, having considered this conflict for years, knowing exactly what it would take to weaken and neutralize Superman to put the playing field on a level where Batman could be victorious. And he was, and it was great, and we loved it. And it has a little twist ending. There's there's a couple of twists on top of twists. To, to end the book, and when Dark Knight was over, you wanted more. That's that's when you know that you have stuck the landing. You know that you want more. Your desire is for more. And in this instance, boy, did I want a Dark Knight 5 immediately. And it was sad to leave that, um, that saga and that world behind. Now, when Frank came back, we're going to get to that someday. I totally dug the very controversial uh, Dark Knight Strikes again. We're going to cover that sooner than later. Great, amazing uh, sequel, I loved it, but it was not from the outside. The, the outset that wasn't even just a not a satisfying 
finale to many people didn't weren't satisfied with anything to do with that sequel which is very interesting and worth a deep deep dive which i will no doubt be doing with my buddy jimmy j when we come back and re-engage on this amazing topic but dark knight i can tell you because i've reminded many of you before i worked in a comic store i was working in a comic store in 1986 i bumped into rick Worf the other day he has booths at the frankenstein show that i frequent I wanted to go up to him, say hi. I hadn't seen him and talked to him in years. I really wasn't aware that he made the transition to the new, um, nicer, um, much more zhuzhed out uh, version of Frankenstein's that is currently in the city of industry. And I went and said hi. I said, hey, Rick, I didn't, I, I, you know, had never been down this aisle. I didn't know you were here. We, we talked. We talked about the times I, I, I worked at his store in Tustin and I worked briefly in his um store that he bought in Pomona and we just talked about those times those times in comics and again that time was 85 and 86 with maybe just a kiss of 87 so kind of end of 85 all the way through 86 a little kiss middle of 87 and that was the time that I was manning the store three days a week that store would transition into uh, Tustin Tunes and Toys which stands today it it is still there Uh, the, the history of that store carries it is Tustin's finest Perhaps Tustin's only, but one of Tustin's finest comic stores. Man, am I giving the shout-outs today. Um, th- this is what happens. You know, I-, I just have all these sponsors. It's crazy. Uh, um, so anyway, and I work them in so effortlessly. <laughs> all my sponsors are worked in effortlessly. We got Burrito Brothers. We got For All Mankind. We got Comics, Tunes, and Toys, all right? But when I was working at the comic store, the fever for Dark Knight started with issue one. Issue two couldn't get there fast enough. It was on time. Issue three was late. Issue four was late. Watchmen, the conclusion was late. These books slowed down, but the anticipation was through the roof. Right now, something similar that's playing out is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles last Ronin series, which takes place in the future. There is a situation where there is only one turtle left and all the mystery that surrounds it. Uh, It is blown up. The original, the last uh, Ronin series was months late in arriving to your stores. It was originally, I think it's supposed to be there in July. It arrived in October. The follow-up arrived two weeks ago in the end of February, but that did not stop it from increasing in sales and fever. And sometimes, now I've always wondered this, not being on time can juice the interest and the uh, the appetite, the fever for any given project. And on this one, it most certainly had both Last Ronin and Dark Knight and Watchmen. When Watchmen came out, in, in a completely different instance, uh, it was not. I worked there. I can tell you, the Dark Knight. I mean, you had people gasping and ooing and awing, and they couldn't believe it. And they'd reach and they'd grab another one because that's what that's what you did. I, I recently again, I've been bagging and boarding so many of my comic book collection, and I'm shocked to see all the books that I would buy. I remember it, but you know, sometimes you don't see it until you it's right in your face. And, and, and this really came about as uh, in regards to the West Coast Avengers, which I'm going to mention when we speak of WandaVision here at the end, because you, know, you can't talk about sticking the landing without discussing whether WandaVision did or not, and we will. But I went out to my garage realizing that when my dad, uh, God bless him, in the late 90s, he would come by to see myself and Joy uh, three to four hours every day, five days a week in the mornings. We gave him a job. Uh, he wanted to be useful, and it was the latter part of his life. And so he would come over and, in the garage, at his own pace, on his own time, organize my entire comic book collection. He would always come in for a cup of coffee, a visit, and then he would always come in for a, a lunch and then go home. And that was kind of by by 12.30, he was on his way and he had the rest of his day. But he loved hanging with us, and it, was, it gave him a purpose. I think he loved that I had such an incredible comic collection. And he know he knows that he was part of starting me on that comic book journey by sanctioning me, you know, and, and allowing me to start buying these these forbidden treasures from Seven Eleven and all the different markets in the first place. But uh, he would come in and he would he would he would always say, hey hey, you know, I I put all the Avengers together, you know, I know you have West Coast Avengers, but it pivoted to Avengers West Coast, so I started filing everything Avengers, so solo Avengers, West Coast Avengers, Avengers Spotlight. Everything is in the A section. So I realized, remembered, thank you, Dad. Way to do a solid for your 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 uh, crazy son. And I went out to the garage three weeks ago, and I was like, oh my gosh, all my West Coast Avengers are in this box. These these boxes, these two two and a half long boxes of Avengers related titles. And really, uh, I had taken 
I have a, a short box that has all my Mylar issues in it right now, kind of what I've deemed as my special standout favorite issues of the Avengers. And we're going to, those are actually going to play heavily into what we're about to tackle here. So, so, so far we're holding it together. But my West Coast Avengers, I remember, and again, Mr. Marat Michaels, who was in the studio with me when I was doing these New Mutants issues, New Mutants, you know, the, 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 the Extinction Agenda era, all the way through 98, 99, 100, the creation, formation of Deadpool, X-Force. Uh, Marat and I would go to the comic store on Fridays because that's when comic books came out. And, and I remember when John Byrne took back over the West Coast Avengers. And so I would buy multiple copies. So I'm sitting there going, oh yeah, I remember if something excited me like John Byrne and his work always did, I would buy multiple copies. And in this case, every issue of his West Coast Avengers, I have three copies of. So that's great when you're looking to make sure that you have, you know, the white vision and the first appearance of, you know, vision quest that you have. Wow, I have three great copies and boom, boom, boom. Those went into the Mylar bags. Okay. So back then it was totally feasible that if you got excited about something or you like something, you bought multiples of it. And people bought multiples of Dark Knight number four. This showdown between Batman and Superman just excited people. Maybe they gave him his gifts. Maybe they put extras in their, um, in their, in, in their boxes. Maybe like I did, they isolated one as a reading copy and the other two or three as collector copies. Cause I mean, come on, that's what you're thinking. You're just thinking this is, this is the stuff that I want to carry with me through the rest of my life. That's how we think we're collectible, crazy people. So with Dark Knight on the spot, right there, people turned back, they bought another copy. Maybe they bought two. I watched it. I rang them up. Dark Knight excited the masses. Pivot to Watchmen 12. Watchmen 11 was very exciting. It is, in many ways, the de facto issue. It is the de facto finale. It is the you know penultimate issue where everything comes to the head. And in Watch- Watchmen 12, when you opened up to those early pages in the book, and especially page two and three, where you see the squids, and you see the squid reveal, and the Rosimandius had brought an alien squid or what appeared to be one and that that was the reason that everything you know that 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 was kind of the catalyst for 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 why he was doing everything and to instigate and to instill the fear in mankind and it was the justification of why he had set down the path that he had and how he was going to reset everything going forward in the future i'm going to tell you being on site the day watchman 12 hit this is, you know, they've already broken into his, you know, Arctic fortress and 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 uh, Dr. Manhattan has reemerged and Rorschach and all of the great action set piece conflicts that you wanted to play out, played out. And now it was the, let me tell you, you know, everything that I did. And I love, you know, the idea that you don't really think I would tell you this as if it hadn't happened. What I'm telling you happened a half hour ago, 20 minutes ago, whatever. This is that issue, and I'm telling you, the squids took people out of it. I was there in real time in 1986 when people were like, huh, squids? Watchmen had really cast all its credibility on the fact that it was so gritty, it was so realistic. It really, again, with with the extra term in office by Nixon, the nuclear arms Cold War aspect, that seeing these giant squid arms through people, it really threw people. It's it's not the ending they anticipated. It is, uh, I remember when I... I mentioned recently that I shared a studio with Jim Valentino and the end of the bottom line is a lot of those walks and those talks that I talked to to you about with Alan, I mean with uh, with Jim Valentino, we would discuss Alan Moore and his ability to end comics satisfyingly or not. And Jim had a theory that Alan uh, would, the only real thing that Alan was consistent at, he would always set up an amazing premise, but he had trouble sticking the landing. And he had trouble finishing up comics to the satisfaction of the masses so much was built up and as we as you know we decide in our minds what we want to see and we had all wanted to see certain you know paybacks and certain comeuppance and when it was hey ozymandias i've you know tricked the world and i've tricked the world into working together because of a greater threat you know than all of us that is going to come from outer space in the form of these giant alien squids so you know that was weird and people were not turning around and buying extra copies of Watchmen 12. They bought their copy. They kind of shook their head. A lot of people obviously flipped through it in the store. We are impatient comic book fans. We know how to immediately go access, 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 page 5, page 10, page 8, you know. And you're skimming it. 
And it was not a book that was beloved for its ending. And I believe history will tell you that, that people were like, huh? There was a big huh factor where with Dark Knight 4, it was, yeah. So that was just, now does it make Watchmen and all the great moments and the breadcrumbs and all the uh, investigative work that was done by Rorschach and the growth of the owl and just, it, look, Silk Spectre, all of it was fantastic. The ending did, in fact, leave people lacking in the same way that people debate the end of Game of Thrones or the game and the end of Lost. These people are, that th there was not a consensus that it was fantastic and that it scored in the biggest possible way. So in terms of these decisive wins, and maybe you don't have to stick the landing, you know, Movie endings, trilogies, I can think of the recent J.J. Abrams, well, it's called the J.J. Abrams trilogy, even though Ryan Johnson was in the middle there. It didn't stick the landing. It was divisive. People were not happy with the directions that it took. Some people like me saw it for the eye candy that it was, kind of recognize that you love, you know, Star Wars, uh, just maybe more for the eye candy than anything else. So a couple lightsaber battles in the middle of the ocean, big waves crashing down. Yeah, that did it for me. I was good. But other people wanted a richer deeper resonance. I was not happy with the return of return of, with the end of return of the Jedi when I, was a, when I was a kid. You know, Star Wars blew me away when I was 9. So by the time when I saw, you know, Jedi when I was, you know, almost 16, it it was not the same to me. I didn't like I didn't like the Ewoks. I I've, I've watched the the round table with John Favreau where he talks about by the time he was 6 years later and going to see the third Star Wars movie of Return of the Jedi that he was really turned off by the teddy bears and the Ewoks. And so was I. And I was like, wow, we're the same age. We saw it the same way. He's like, my taste had run to R-rated stuff, to Alien, okay? To to more, to Blade Runner, to 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 stuff that was that was coming out in the early 80s that, that had R-rated material. I watched Excalibur numerous times. I, I had a new kind of adult appetite and it looked like Return of the Jedi was going in the opposite direction. I understand George wanted to keep the audience young. He was always thinking about the next audience. I saw it very clearly when my kids, you know, Luke Liefeld's first movie was when he was five. He It went in 2005 with Revenge of the Sith, and he reacted to it in the manner that I had hoped. He loved it. Um, he eventually saw Attack of the Clones and Phantom Menace on the DVDs that we had in the house, but he hadn't seen them prior. He, back, he, he went back, he experienced it all, he dug it. That generation does not view the George Lucas prequel trilogy in the same way that those of us who were in our 30s did. Because we just had different expectations that we brought to the table. But in regards to sticking the landing recently, Star Wars in the form of The Mandalorian, every episode built one upon the other on this amazing crescendo that Favreau and his team built. And by the time that last episode arrived and, and Luke Skywalker emerges, what? We could not believe that was the Jedi that we were getting. And it was exceeding all expectations the action was fantastic. Mando himself got some great set pieces. He got some great emotional beats. And Luke Skywalker topped it all off with this amazing performance where he took back Grogu, the child. And we were thrilled and standing on our couches and whoop, whooping. And maybe that was just the life held home. But I kind of feel like it was your house too. So that's another instance where the landing hit it, exceeded it. People talked about it. They they still They are still talking two months later, about the ending of The Mandalorian, okay? That's how good it was. It really lifted you up. Now, an interesting uh, uh, saga that maybe didn't end in the way that people wanted, and it was one of the most exciting of my generation, is this Avengers storyline that I discussed earlier, and it is called The Korvac Saga, K-O-R-V-A-C. You can Google it, The Korvac Saga. I'm not going to do a direct rereading of the whole thing today, but I'm going to take you along the broad strokes. Korvac was introduced in a Thor annual. Which annual? I didn't Google before I got on with you guys today. It's out there. Look up Korvac and Thor annual. And when he was introduced, he was a bit of a B-level villain and a B-level visual. He was interesting looking. From his torso up, he was in a purple kind of masked costume that was kind of like a goofy B-movie uh, spacesuit costume. Purple, you know... Um, spandex and 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 his torso was attached to this cool like floating block it was like more um, angled and, and 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 partially cylindrical but it was this hovering block so he only he had no legs at the waist he was attached to this machine which he would float around with and threaten people and he was you know ominous and 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 kind of cool and threatening looking well after that thor annual 
and some encounters with the Guardians of the Galaxy, we pivoted to Avengers 167. And this is in the heyday of so much of what I've shared with you in this last year during this podcast and this 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 heyday of the Avengers era, which was um, really so much of it was drawn by George Perez during... Uh, and you can hear me turning this around. If you hear this, this is I'm, 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 I'm now have the hardcover in my hands and I'm checking it out. And it's uh, Avengers 167, 168 is when the Korvac saga gets off and running. And this is following Count Nefaria and a killer Ultron saga. And and I mean the Avengers was clicking. It was it was arguably the best book Marvel was publishing. Avengers quite hadn't found X Men quite didn't find its stride yet. Burn was just coming on during this period. But Korvac was introduced in 1977, the fall of 1977. I remember specifically grabbing this comic from the 7-Eleven that was not the one that I normally talk of that is on Magnolia and Broadway. This was up off of uh, Euclid and uh, and and um, and Ball Road, and and I grabbed this particular Avengers 167 off the comic book Spinner Rack. On a Saturday morning, and then went and got my egg McMuffin and my hash browns because they were pretty relatively. I think I think I'm gonna have to look, but I think the egg McMuffin, and the hash browns that McDonald's were, were producing, they had just launched in that window, 1977, around that time, or maybe I just discovered them. Further, it doesn't really matter. I grabbed this comic, I took off on my bike, I drove a few blocks down, and I parked it at the McDonald's booth with my Saturday morning weekend breakfast of champions egg sausage McMuffin. And hash browns. And oh my gosh, I was in hog heaven reading this Avengers issue where the Guardians of the Galaxy arrive in our time from their far-flung future. S.H.I.E.L.D. is alerted to it. It's this giant space station. It's kind of got a Death Star over, overture to it in terms of its size, but it's a giant like wheel. Nick Fury asks Avengers to intervene. They board the spacecraft. They meet the Guardians, which are on it. They have a quick tussle and tangle. And this is where Starhawk, who is the leader of the Guardians, and this is the Guardians of the Galaxy of the 70s, with Yondu, with Martinex, with uh, Nikki, um, um, Vance Astro, very cool, cool, cool team. Loved them, loved every time they appeared. But uh, they inform them that they have chased this bad guy to this time period, and they're star- sorry to have uh, you know alarmed all of us, but they're not going to be going anywhere. And they talk about... The fact that they are chasing Korvac Thor, because this all started in this Thor annual that I spoke of, verifies everything they're saying. And he says, uh, you know, Starhawk returned Thor to 1977 at the end of that annual. And then, uh, you know, Korvac escaped. And they believe that, uh, that he is here to manipulate our time, our reality, and that he may be trying to kill Vance Astro as a young boy because Vance Astro is in his 30s. So um, so, so, so it's basically a Terminator-type storyline years before you'd see it in Terminator, but it was probably in a Twilight episode prior to that. But that is when Iron Man then tells Nick Fury, everything's cool, the Guardians are going to stay in this, you know, in our just, just above our atmosphere, they're going to be hovering, and they're here for a mission, we've sanctioned it, and this begins the Korvac saga, except then we pivot to a fashion show in the same issue that... Wanda Van Dyne, Wanda Pym, uh, because other than when she is being the Wasp, she is a rich socialite and she has a fashion um, a fashion line that she's promoting and, and she is here at this, um, this uh, 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 really kind of rich uh, fashion uh, gala in this ballroom that she, she comes out and, and is going to show off her line and her, her, um, her collection. And so this very mysterious blonde man in a tuxedo drops down next to Kyle Richmond, who is Nighthawk, who normally appears in The Defenders. And this is what I love about Marvel Comics. This, they would just casually, suddenly have a character, a major character from another comic book in a supporting role in the last half of this job, where then, during this fashion show, uh, this model comes out named Karina, and she is modeling this high-end pantsuit, and she catches the attention of this blonde guy, very stern-looking, square-jawed, blonde guy in a tuxedo. Then a a a Marvel villain called the Porcupine crashes the gala because he figures there's a, lot, there's a lot of money here, and he attempts to hold up all these rich people. The Wasp defends her show, and Nighthawk jumps into his costume and teams with the Wasp to take out 
Porcupine and all his guys, because again, all the Avengers are up in this space station other than the Wasp, Janet, you know, Van Dyne, Janet Pym. And uh, in the meantime, while this is happening, this square jaw, square uh, jawed blonde guy moves to this beautiful model, Karina. And she's like, who are you? He locks eyes with her, basically holds her in a trance. And it, you see over the beat of these several panels, he grabs her and they dissipate into light. And no one really notices that she's gone. This, and that's how the issue ends with Wasp and uh, and and uh, Nighthawk having felled the porcupine, and and they're uh, you know they're discussing you know kind of the details of what these criminals were after. And then someone says, you know, our our supermodel is missing, and that's it. Now the next episode is called "To Slay a Guardian," and it is that—that's what it says at the end of issue one sixty-seven. But in issue one sixty-eight, the splash page says First Blood." Great title, right? We're going to use that a lot in pop culture. First Blood," Avengers one sixty-eight. Starhawk and the Avenger and the Guardians of the Galaxy accompany the event the Avengers on their Quinjet, their special space jet that they fly around in, and they accompany them back to Avengers Mansion. There's some drama with the mansion. It's been shut down. It's been taken over by the government. That's a subplot for another time. But at the end of the day, they basically tell the Guardians that they can stay here as long as they want, that they will be hospitable, even though the government's like, you can't have these aliens stay here. And uh, Tony Stark is assertive enough that he believes that they can safely hang out here and says the Guardians will be calling our mansion home for the time being while they go about their mission. So we're almost all the way through this issue. That's issue 168 is all them landing back here alongside the Avengers, the Guardians of the Galaxy, and entering a shut-down uh, Avengers mansion, which they learn has now been co-opted by the government because the government is taking control of the Avengers operation, deeming them too dangerous. Well, here's the deal. Starhawk, hold on to your heads here. This is very progressive. Starhawk would also, at times, appear as a woman. He would take the form of a woman named Alita, A-L-E-T-A. She shows up at this mansion in New Jersey, okay, in, in Forest Hills. And uh, Karina, the model that disappeared with the lantern-jawed blonde man, the previous issue, uh, answers the door. Alita is there. She is dressed like a female. She has colors all of the star Starhawk, who is all in blue and yellow. She's blonde. Uh, Alita is very attractive herself. Um, she steps in and Karina says, oh my gosh, he was expecting you. And she says, well, therein lies the hope of the universe. And Korvac, who we're going to know, his name is, he's calling himself Michael now. In this human form, he is Michael. He says, I am the hope of the universe. Forgive my wife for not introducing herself. This is Karina. I have taken the name and form of Michael. And in this form, you are Alita. Okay? And this, you know, he's got his gym shorts on and his tight Izod shirt. Michael is very muscular and again, square jawed, very, very, um, the, the picture of, of 1977, 78 masculinity. Uh, he asks Karina to leave the room because he and Alita have business. At the, Once Karina leaves, Michael and Alita outstretch their arms and take on celestial forms. She becomes the male Starhawk. So these female Alita becomes male Starhawk. Pretty great. As a kid, tripping out on this, really digging it. Michael becomes the celestial version, and he says, We will do battle on every plane of existence, Starhawk. But I am warning you, I will win and destroy you utterly. So they start this battle that is, that, that is in the den or the library of this mansion that also takes to the celestial plane, and they literally beat the living crap out of each other. So much so over the course of these pages that the blasting and the and the counter-punching and the all of the conflict that's going on is registering across the Marvel Universe. Spider-Man, it shows, is out on a date with Mary Jane Watson, and he's like, my spider sense is going crazy. What's going on here? There's an incredible danger. So this is how, you know, groundbreaking this battle in this den library in Forest Hills, New Jersey, is playing out. Michael slash Korvac tells Starhawk, I am more powerful than you can imagine. And he says, uh, you know, I don't want to kill you, but I, but I will if I have to. Release me and just let me do my celestial bidding. He says, I'm going to fight you to the last breath, Starhawk does. And Starhawk is using, Starhawk is very powerful. He's a very A-list level power in the Marvel Universe. 
Doctor Strange is now alerted. Captain Marvel, before Marvel was female, Captain Marvel, they're both, again, disturbed by the level of the cosmic battle that's going on in this home between Starhawk and Korvac. Finally, he says, die, Starhawk, and he eliminates him. Uh, he, he dissipates him into little bitty pieces. At this point, Silver Surfer is surfing over our planet and is alerted and says, there's a, a cataclysm beyond the pale has shaken the continuum, the co continuum. You know, what does this mean? I mean, a, a cataclysm beyond the pale has shaken our continuum. What does this mean? This is cool. So you, you, we've had Spider-Man, we've had Silver Surfer, we've had Doctor Strange, we've had Captain Marvel all react to the events that are happening in the finale of Avengers 168 where this new villain is showing just how powerful he is. Michael Korvac, he destroys and dissipates Starhawk, but then drops him as dust to the ground and says, you are finished. The greatest powers of the universe remain unaware of my very being. Those who would oppose me do not yet array themselves for the war ahead. But I have drawn first blood, hence the title of the issue. At the end, he reassembles Starhawk. He says, I'm going to rest restore you. Live again, remade molecule by molecule, exactly as you were intended. But henceforth, you will not remember this incident, nor the fact of my existence, and you will never again perceive me. So he's basically saying, you're going to leave here and you're going to forget that you and I had this battle where I kicked your ass and I destroyed you to the point where I reduced you to dust and then remade you. And it said... You know, Starhawk leaves. He is troubled, but he, uh, you know, has a comfortable sense of a purpose that he knows what he must do. And, uh, you know, the, 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 this is just a giant ass whooping. Starhawk returns to the Avengers mansion and he says, we must proceed with the directive of our mission and find Vance Astro and prepare him because that benefits Michael Korvac. And uh, it's it ends with three panels with Michael in his den, all the lights off, one spotlight on him from the lamp. He dimly ponders and plans. Okay, so now from this point on, all the way, so so he's introduced in, in, in Avengers, his his element, his, his, his Korvac pivots to being Michael in Avengers 167, and this story will play out all the way up until... The, the, the climactic battle in 177. So 10 months across two years, this battle plays out. Along the way, George Perez, who just drew the first two issues that I told you of, and he, fought, he, he draws the next two and one after that, and then every chapter therein afterwards is drawn by either a gentleman named Sal Buscema, who is one of the all-time greats in the comic book world, or it is drawn by a brand new guy that I had never, ever heard before named Dave Wenzel. Okay, but let me tell you something. The inker slash finisher that did all of this is named Pablos Marcos. He inked the George Perez issues that I just showed you. He does 167, 168, 169, 170. That's George Perez and Pablos Marcos. Um, when Dave Wenzel comes on in 174, a few issues later, uh, you know, we've got Pablos Marcos inking this new guy, Dave Wenzel. Well, Pablos Marcos as the finisher Again, this pivots to what we discussed last podcast, finishers, embellishers. He has a fairly, a very attractive line, but it is, it is, it is fairly um, strong, a strong uh, 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 style that he will apply on to you so that a George Perez inked by Pablos Marcos and a Dave Wenzel inked by Pablos Marcos is somewhat, you know, they're, they're, they're compatible. They, they're, they're not not indiscernible because you can tell it's Perez and you can tell it's Wenzel. But the blend is Pablos Marcos, who is a brilliant finisher artist in his own right. He can he can pencil it on his own, but he thrived on being a finisher and, embe and an embellisher in at this age at Marvel. And he primarily, Avengers was his book that he finished. So the reason at the end, you've got all of the Avengers assembled because Korvac's plan has, I'm not going to ruin it for you, it involves the Titans of the Galaxy, it, it, the Celestial Titans like Collector. Um, I mean, he really, he's taking out people on a galactic scale to the point where the Avengers finally become alerted to him. And issue 177 is the giant throwdown. And you have the entire uh, entirety of the Avengers, Iron Man, Thor, Cap, Hercules, Hawkeye, Wonder Man, Captain Marvel, Ms. Marvel, Black Widow, Wasp, 
You've got the Guardians of the Galaxy, everybody. They are all going to this house in Forest Hills to have this giant showdown. And the 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 uh, the cliffhanger of issue 176 is them surrounding him and he turns celestial like he did when he pummeled Starhawk. So we know that 177 is going to be a giant throwdown. 177 has a killer Dave Cockrum cover of all the Avengers dead sprawled all over the, man, the, 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 the Forest Hills mansion and Thor's alter ego, Dr. Don Blake, is trying to revive them all. And the title is Those Who Lay Dying. And so Karina is now celestial empowered by Michael slash Korvac. And this battle begins. And the battle is felt on Asgard. It is felt on the moon with the Watcher. Eternity, the celestial being, uh, feels it. And, um, and Odin and Zeus and Mephisto gather together to protect their realms from the intrusion of Michael slash Korvac. He is the biggest cosmic threat. And he is very, he has been very built out over the course of this entire year. His machinations, his motivations the way he is corrupted. And uh, literally, guys, he takes on Iron Man. He takes on Thor. He takes on uh, Captain Marvel. He takes on, you know, Wonder Man. He throttles all of them. Here in this one panel, he takes out Scarlet Witch, Black Widow, Black Panther, all in one fell swoop. Um, Cap tries to battle him with his fists, but he ultimately uh, throws Cap through a wall. And literally, as I said, he... Um, and Moondragon, who is a huge, huge cosmic power. Um, it, it, it appears as if they all die in this battle, but Korvac also dies. But Moondragon and Thor summon enough to reawaken and save everybody and bring them all back to life. But Korvac has been dissipated in the end. It was complicated. It was raw. It was amazing. But the beginning of this hardcover has a note and a foreword by the editor. And, and, and to me, let, let me dwell on the fact that when I was a kid and I pulled that cover off, I was anticipating the end of this. They promised me a giant showdown over the years. And as more and more Avengers appeared in these books over the course of the years, Hercules reappeared, Black Widow. Okay, we get Moondragon back, Thor back, we get Iron Man back. You know, you've got Wonder Man, you've got Scarlet Witch, you've got Vision, you've got every possible heavy hitter teaming with the Guardians of the Galaxy. But for some people, and I am in a group, as I am in many groups, and I love these guys, we, we discussed this era of comics that we all grew up on. So many guys condemn those last chapters because they were not drawn by George Perez. Oh, I don't, I don't view them in the same light because they weren't drawn by George Perez. Let me tell you something. I'm 11 when I'm, 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 I'm getting these comics. Um, and, and, and in 1977, in 1978... I am from 77 to 78 during this period. I transitioned from 10 years old to 11 years old. And I remember waiting for every chapter as it built to this crescendo. The issue that they all gather before they go to New Jersey to battle him is exciting because they're getting together. They're all deciding this is what, what we must do. The, 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 you know, it, it's the calm before the storm. And they're going to unite and they're going to go track down Korvac, who we have seen over the course of the last year trash big-time galactic nemesis. And he is in his same short track shorts and his tight Izod shirt. Korvac doesn't have a, have, a, have a costume. He's a blonde, square, lantern-jawed guy, and Karina is in her dolphin shorts and her top when they battle the Avengers and become these celestial versions of themselves. So it's, it's awesome. Pablos Marcos did great finishes. Dave Wenzel was somebody I'd never heard of, but these Avengers issues that he did were exciting. They had dynamics. They had good storytelling. They had great gestures and action. And I was all in. I'm sorry George didn't stay around. I love George. I bought everything George did when I was a kid. At Marvel, he was doing Marvel 2-in-1. He was doing Fantastic Four. He was doing The Inhumans. He was doing The Avengers. He was everywhere. He did a classic X-Men annual that everybody worships at the altar of. But this particular job, he couldn't finish. He, he left in the middle of the saga. So here's what the editor at the time, Roger Stern, writes. He talks about how, um, you know, that, that, uh, that Jim Shooter, who wrote all this, who I've been remiss to not tell you that Jim Shooter had written all of this, was um, how, how ambitious his plan for this giant Korvac, and K-O-R-V-A-C is a great name. Korvac slash Michael, great name, great identity. I love that he was he didn't have a giant galactic suit of armor. He was just this guy who would take the celestial form from his kind of, you know, guy going to the gym look. But he lived in this giant mansion in New Jersey. He took this beautiful girl from this fashion show. It says, 
Whenever there's a poll, this is Roger Stern, who is the editor and obviously a great writer. We've we, we, we've loved so many of Roger Stern's Spider-Man stories, his Doctor Strange stories, his Avengers stories, his Captain America stories, okay? But he was an editor at the time. He says, whenever there's a poll of the greatest Avengers stories of all time, the Korvac saga invariably, in, invariably makes the list, usually near the top and for good reason. There are layers upon layers in the overall story. It is a tale both cosmic and down-to-earth. It is the story of a man with the power of a god outwardly living a quiet life from a modest home in suburban New York and his conflict with Earth's mightiest heroes. This story ran for 11 issues with one small interruption, involved over 15 present and future Avengers, plus Captain Marvel, the Guardians of the Galaxy, Nick Fury, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Nighthawk, and the Two-Gun Kid. In addition to the main villain of the piece, there are major encounters with Ultron and with the Collector, plus Korvac's saga carries cameo appearances by Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, Silver Surfer, and practically the entire Marvel Universe, who is aware of this tremendous power. And to think that it all happened because George Perez wanted to draw a big epic story with tons of characters. If you know anything at all about George Perez, you know that he always has wanted to draw. Well, everybody. The more the characters, the better. And Big Jim Shooter was happy to oblige. Surprisingly, this is where I, I entered the picture once again. A few months before I had written what I thought to be the final appearance of the Guardians of the Galaxy via their guest appearance in Thor Annual 6. So here you have it. It's Thor Annual 6. But then somebody, Jim, George, I really don't remember who, thought it would be fun to include the Guardians of the Galaxy in the next big Avengers storyline. And since I had written that annual, as well as the Guardians' last few appearances, they invited me to sit in on their first plotting session. After all these years, I don't recall what I contributed to the plot, but Jim and George were gracious enough to give me a co-plotting credit in that issue. It was in that issue, Avengers 167, for those of you keeping track, that George gave Wonder Man the distinctive red safari jacket that would serve as his working clothes for the next seven years. But even as the first chapter of the saga started drawing accolades, events beyond our control seemed to conspire against it. Remember, I'm telling you, when this storyline hit, when I am reading this saga at McDonald's with my sausage muffin, I am going, oh my gosh, it's got outer space. It's got the Guardians of the Galaxy. We've got a new super team. They're coming together with the Avengers. They're going to live at the mansion. Shields involved. Huge. Great art. George Pablos Marcos, amazing. Jim Shooter, great story. Even as the first Chapter of this saga started drawing accolades. Events beyond our control seemed to conspire against it. First, George started falling behind on his deadlines. In an interview conducted years later, he would recall, I had not drawn any book for six months straight at any given time. And here we were planning a story that would take a year to complete. I started doing full pencils, and then I did layouts, and then I started losing momentum completely. Marv Wolfman and Sal Buscema produced a story for Avengers 169, buying George much-needed time in his schedule. But after two more issues, George regretfully had to step away from the story he had so wanted to illustrate. Having started on this epic journey, Jim Shooter was determined to see it through, enlisting the storytelling prowess of Sal Buscema for a couple issues before bringing in young Dave Wenzel to finish up the tale. But Jim also found himself sorely tested, as, oddly enough, did I. At the end of 1977, Archie Goodwin stepped down and Marvel's entire editorial structure was reorganized. Jim Shooter became the editor-in-chief, the EIC. He asked me to be the editor. Suddenly, I went from shepherding a handful of reprint books to overseeing a dozen current titles, including Avengers. I wouldn't have to worry too much, or so I thought. It soon became clear that Jim's new responsibilities as editor-in-chief were going to make it just about impossible for him to write a regular monthly book. But he promised that he would plot the Avengers through the end of the Korvac saga. He would draw upon David Michelinie and Bill Mantlo to help script the stories. Then, miracle of miracles, Jim managed to squeeze an extra couple of hours out of the day, probably by foregoing sleep, to script the final issue. So in the meantime, Jim was creating the plot, the story, all hinged on him and his imagination, and he was pulling in other freelancers to provide dialogue and script. We've covered this. This pertains to the podcast episode about credits that, that has really turned out to be one of the more popular ones because so much of you, so many of you guys didn't understand what that script is not a Hollywood script. That's not a screenplay. In comic books back then, 70s all the way through the 90s, script meant dialogue. You hung the dialogue balloons, nothing more. Michelini, Bill Mantlo, they wrote into their own stories. They were happy to help script Avengers over Shooter's amazing story and saga. The readers loved it, Rogers, Rogers Turn writes. We received so many letters, stacks of them, raving about the deep philosophical issues that Jim had brought up in the course of producing a monthly book. Others were tickled by the sly humor of having the Earth's Mightiest Heroes ride a city bus into their final battle. This happened. My own favorite scene is when the Guardians arrive at the climactic moment, moment spooking, spooking the three suburbanites named Murphy, Parkinson, and Peter, who then proceed to personify their respective laws and principles. 
Looking back now, it almost seems impossible, and against all odds, in the middle of a complete editorial reshuffling, Jim brought forth a legendary Avengers saga that is still considered one of the classics of the Marvel Age of Comics. And you hold all the evidence you need in your hands. Enjoy. Roger Stern. So you there, right there, we see how George had to get off the project. It overwhelmed him. He lost momentum. They brought in other talents. For me, 11-year-old Rob Liefeld, it still was the best saga. I put it up there with the Dark Phoenix saga as the best comic book story of the 70s. Multi-layered, multi-parts, multi-characters. I loved it. I drunk it up when I just looked at it again as I was going through you, which is not the first time in the last week I've looked at it. It was rich. I, I, I was so incredibly satisfied by that finale. To me, it stuck the landing. Only to, only to learn years later in these Facebook groups that I that these basically they're comic book clubs and we all talk and chat and visit that not everybody felt the same way as I did. Most of them were very resentful that George didn't do it and they hold it against the entire saga where I believe that the right elements were brought in and they did stick the landing, but it's a split decision based on everything I've ever seen. I think the book did very well. It resonated, but everyone lives in a woulda, coulda, shoulda world where as what if George Perez had drawn this as we wanted. And again, we're all fans and what we want matters and it affects how we receive what we receive. And that brings us perfectly to the close of WandaVision. We talked about it on this podcast several times. It, it, the thing I love the most about WandaVision now that it's over is that it reignited me going through my back issue boxes, getting getting comic books that dictated Agatha Harkness meeting Scarlet Witch, Scarlet Witch snapping not once, not twice, three times. Before House of M, when people try and say House of M, is what, she did not snap for the first time. That's several times later, she had major breakdowns prior in the Bronze Age that House of M built off. You don't get to House of M without these crucial tales, some of which Jim Shooter wrote, Dave Michelini wrote, fantastic tales, drawn by George Press, drawn by John, John Byrne. So that, 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 that's the thing, I, the, the thing I love the most about WandaVision and those West Coast Avengers and reliving them and, and, and feeling and remembering that that was maybe the last great work John Byrne did in his giant career before he pivoted more to Independence and Dark Horse. But that was his strongest finale in regards to Marvel work. So I enjoyed it. I loved grabbing those comics, revisiting them, connecting them, getting my Scarlet Witch Vision miniseries, getting... The original miniseries, the original Maxi series, going back to their wedding issues and the giant size Avengers. I consumed all of it. I relived it all. I was back in the sandbox. I was back at the McDonald's, the liquor store, the 7-Elevens. The nostalgia was great. The performances by Paul Bettany and 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 and, uh, and Mrs. Olsen were the absolute best. I prefer Bettany. I, 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 it was great to see him for an extended time and shoot the scenery and, and show all of his you know, acting chops from the comedic realm to the dramatic to the maudlin. He's just fantastic. I really, my favorite part was in fact, Paul Bettany and his depiction as vision, whether he was an out of control, uh, goofy magician with his inner gears mucked up with gum as I, I, it's my favorite episode is issue two, or they were doing the Brady Bunch as in issue three, or he was saying goodbye poetically in issue seven. But I've read a lot of people criticizing fans who said they weren't satisfied by the finale because it didn't, in fact, stick the landing. It did not. It did not, in fact, stick the landing. And I'll tell you why, because it's a split decision. Marvel has had so many, you know, victory laps, Endgame, Infinity War. But I've talked to so many people about WandaVision who are on the fence or people who equally dislike it to people who equally love it. People who love it actually apologize for loving it. People who like it don't really apologize. I mean, people who dislike it don't really apologize for disliking it. Where, where, where it gets interesting is I really loved all of the experimental big swings of the bat that they took on WandaVision. The, the Twin Peaks, for a lack of a better word, aspects. The, the weirdness of the show. The episodes one, two, and three. And, and, and then episode four reset it and, and gave it that Marvel cinematic universe kind of parameters. It brought in Sword. It brought in Monica Rambeau. Rambeau it brought in Jimmy Yu. It, it, it brought in Darcy. It combined elements, gave us a backstory, and kind of started making it into familiar tropes. And what we were all desperate for was it to be something different. Uh, I love the performances. I love the relationship. I love it in the comics. So of course, I'm going to love it in TV. But but along the way, with the Evan Peters casting as Pietro, or they want to call him Fietro, or as we know him as Fox's Quicksilver, when you cast him, you are opening up your door to a very uh, sensitive, 
uh, group of fans, myself being one of them, we get easily excited. We get easily discouraged. Exciting us uh, really makes us stand on our toes. We do research. We, we look into past history. We listen to podcasts. We talk to our friends endlessly, hours. I'm a 50-year-old dude. I talk to a bunch of 50-year-old dudes about WandaVision. We are hypothesizing. I get calls on Saturday from executives in entertainment that would turn your head because they're fans. And we're all fans. We're united by our fandom. And we're discussing this back and forth. And the Evan Peters thing and the doorway that it represented a Fox was deliberate. They did it knowing that it would stoke you, knowing that it would get us to all go, huh? What's this? And speculate in the hardest possible way. So much so they knew this that they had to do the week before the finale aired, get on all the major airwaves, that Good Morning America, all the ABC networks, the websites, and apologize for the ending that was no doubt going to disappoint us given where they, 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 they kind of, they, they, you know, directed the sights. They were possible. They were the ones responsible for directing our attention. Uh, I think it's Emma Caulfield. She has spoken out Dottie in the last couple of days that she was intended to be a red herring. So they were doing this the entire time, putting red herrings, stirring the pot. Evan Peters as Quicksilver in Wanderverse in WandaVision, knowing that he was the MC, he he was the Fox Quicksilver, a mutant no less pivoting into the MCU and now appearing as her brother from with the visage that we all associate 100% with Fox. We didn't do that. We didn't cast those aspersions. They did that. They did it deliberately. You, what we call it in my house is you poke the bear. You poke the bear, you're going to get bit. They poke the bear. All the other theories, doesn't really matter. The Evan Peters one is their doing. It's a self-inflicted wound. They cast him. And when it first happened, I asked my buddy from Marvel, I said, you guys wouldn't really be trolling us, would you? You guys would not really be trolling us. And he said, why wouldn't we? It was at that moment that I knew six, five weeks ago, none of this is going to pan out. It, it is an epic troll. And did it affect the way people um, appreciated it? Yes. Did the actors get out of control in, their, in, in having fun with it? Let's say they had fun with it, okay? And they said things they shouldn't that further stoked speculation. That is an element outside of what I watch on Disney+. Plus. I have to do extra work to encounter that. On the show, on Disney+, Plus, WandaVision, I got Evan Peters as the Fox Quicksilver stepping into a MCU universe which had not been done prior. It seemed it was deliberate. And it was deliberate in order to kind of get us to go out of our minds. So many people work so hard to line up the shot. And what I mean by line up the shot is get those sights in place to deliver the perfect blow, to, to deliver the perfect jolt. I'm using, you know, gun sights and shots. I hope it's not offensive, but it's it's lining up the shot. We've all seen the movie. We've all seen in real life. We've got this bad guy in our sights. Do we take the shot? Take the shot, okay? Marvel had the light, the sights lined up perfectly. We bought the Evan Peters. We, we They gave us reasons. They gave us motivations. We were all in. We thought it was a door to something different because they cast Evan Peters. You can't get past the Evan Peters of it all. There are people who have written really snarky articles in this last weekend going, oh, hey, you entitled fans. No, we're not entitled. We were given something that was meant to stoke us, and it did. And so when it wasn't satisfying, that is the end result of the trolling that was done by production. Nothing that we brought to the table. Nothing. I don't have to go to any place where the actors made promises and said there's this, there's that, the other. No. What you did within the confines of the show affected the way I received the show. That is on you, not on me. That is on all of us who feel that we were semi-compromised and trolled. That is on production. Did it absolutely affect the way I felt about the finale? Yes. WandaVision is in the rearview mirror. It's yesterday's news. It's like so much stuff that I consume. I just put it on the side. It happened. I experienced it. I enjoyed it. I was entertained. That's the end of the story. Moving on to the next. Bring me Winter Soldier, Captain America. Maybe it's more straightforward action. Um, I'm ready for it. I'm into it. I think WandaVision had a chance to be something special. I think they danced with it themselves. They performed an epic troll on the rest of us that cannot be removed. Evan Peters is the ingredient that Marvel put in the show in order to stoke us and drive us to speculation and wildly kind of go out of control. They knew it. They understand fandom. They understand it all too well. They know exactly what they're doing, when they're doing, when they're doing it, why, okay? They, they, have, they have been so perfect at this with their mid-credits, their end credits. Everything that gets leaked and pivoted and, and moved around is generally always by their design. So this one kind of bit them in the ass and created a scenario where for people like me, it didn't stick to landing. If it stuck to landing for you, good for you. 
I don't hold it against it. I don't badmouth the show. I do believe that it compromised um, my expectations for what I was going to get. And that's on them, not on me. I just received what they put there. And when it didn't come fully to fruition and in fact became a a, a joke, uh, you know, you, you definitely, you feel a little bit like, well, was why was I toyed with in this manner? And it affects the way you look at it. And uh, I'm not alone. I've heard from a lot of you guys. For those of you who truly loved it, I'm so happy for you. I wouldn't. Why would I want to spoil that? Like, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I really think they took great pains to line up the perfect shot, and 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 very, very. You will find rarely that people can line up a shot the way they can. A perfect shot. And and when you say what well, what does that mean? Hey, at the end, a guy with an, a helmet and a cape floats down over the lake. You know, and we know that that silhouette is Magneto. We see an arm. It's Mag- I'm just telling you where people's minds went, not just mine. This, there, there's millions of people who thought the same thing. The Wanda Vision, the Vision Quest story of which they pulled so many pages out of, pivots towards Magneto reuniting with his father and son. So the roadmap was there from the comics that they were tearing pages of and putting it online. Again, I do not hold it against the show. It affected the way I view it, absolutely, but it doesn't mean that I think the show uh, was not entertaining and was not worth my time. But will I view it again? Will I interact with it? Do I hold it in high regard? I don't. It's on to the next. And as far as on to the next, it'll be on to the next with this podcast. Korvac, okay? Watchmen, Dark Knight, good Lord, for all mankind, Burrito Brothers. I I mean, what didn't I stick into this episode? You guys, what a fun time to be alive and consuming comic books in pop culture. This is a great time. Thank you for all, as always, for sharing this time with me, for hanging out, for talking comics, for walking down memory lane. I love Korvac. I love the Avengers. The Michael Korvac saga remains my favorite of all the Avengers sagas. It's up there with Dark Phoenix to me. It's probably never coming to a theater near you. It's probably never coming to, you know, uh, I don't need it to. It lives rich as a comic book for me. Um, WandaVision, you know, poke the bear. When you poke the bear, you get you get bitten, right? So moving on. Great seeing you guys. Great talking to you guys. I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. Seek me out. Let's talk. I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. I am all over Facebook. I am all over social media. I love hanging out with you guys. I love talking to you, talking you guys up, talking about pop culture and comic books and all the things that we love and we share. Thank you for listening to the show, for subscribing, for recommending it, for talking it up with your friends. Thank you for being here each and every week. I appreciate you so much. Take care of yourselves, please. Stay safe out there. Seriously, stay safe. And we will talk again real soon.